I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 6th. Today, Elizabeth Warren apologizes for claiming Native American heritage. Peace talks with the Taliban and the surprising challenge of counting the nation's pets. I am not a tribal citizen. Tribes and only tribes determine tribal citizenship. I called Chief Baker last week. I told him I was sorry for furthering confusion about uh, tribal citizenship and tribal sovereignty. I'm also sorry for not being more mindful about this decades ago. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is about to officially kick off her 2020 presidential bid. And she's finally giving a real forthright apology for claiming that she had Native American ancestry. So last week was the first time it was leaked that Warren had had a conversation with the chief of the Cherokee Nation. And in this conversation, the initial reporting was that she had apologized to him for taking the DNA test. But in subsequent follow-ups, and when this is the reason that I talked to her on Tuesday, was to say, well, what was that apology really for? Because to me, I followed this for so long, and it just didn't make sense to me that she would just apologize for the DNA test and not the underlying sort of original sin. Annie Linsky covers politics for The Post. And she interviewed the senator because, until recently, Warren had never stated quite so publicly that she was sorry. So and when you say more mindful decades ago, were you apologizing for calling yourself a Native yes. American on, at Penn and at Harvard? Yes. And on the AALS? Yes. And sort of any other sort of, was it a blanket apologies? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. And so in talking to her, I just, I said, look, are you apologizing for you know, calling yourself Native American at the University of Pennsylvania. Are you apologizing for calling yourself Native American at Harvard? And she said yes. And so she was giving a more robust, more details about this private conversation and this private apology that she made to the Cherokee. So I guess she has now, for the first time, apologized for all of it. And in the past, her stance had been, I'm not going to apologize. This is who I saw myself as. And, And she has changed. She has moved on that point. As this was all playing out, Annie, along with reporter Amy Gardner, found another interesting document related to Warren's claims to her Native American ancestry. It's a yellow card. You see her writing in blue ink, very neat print. She writes her name. She writes her business address at the University of Texas Law School. It was from 1986. It's the registration card for the Texas State Bar. And it was filled out in Warren's handwriting. And then there's a line for race. And you see in her handwriting, printing out American Indian under the race line. 
And, you know, for me, that was really stunning. So there are other documents that have Elizabeth Warren listed as Native American or, or say that she was registered as Native American. So why is this registration card significant? Yeah, that's right. There are other documents that have her as Native American in the same time period. I mean, this is a time period. It's 1986 when this card was filled out. This is the time period in which she was calling herself an Indian. And and so that's not surprising. At the University of Pennsylvania, she was listed in her HR forms as Native American. At Harvard, she was listed for a period as Native American. But somehow that is a bureaucratic document, and it's type print, and it has some distance from her. It just appears differently. In this case, she's just completely owning it. It is her handwriting, and she's writing down herself that she is a Native American, and that's how she's identifying herself. What has Elizabeth Warren said about this? She says two things. So first of all, it's important to point out that there's no evidence that she was gaining anything by calling herself Native American on this bar card. I mean, it was supposed to be private information. If you read the card, it clearly stated that this ethnicity data would never be shared. So there's no really rationale for her to do it for for gain in in that purpose. What Warren has said when asked, why were you ever calling yourself a Native American. Like, why did you do this? What she has said is, look, this is a time in my family history where the matriarchs, you know, her mother, her aunts, who she was very close to, were all dying. What Elizabeth Warren has said to me is that these women had long said that they had Native American roots. That had long been part of the family's, their identity. And so Warren was holding on to that when she was calling herself Native American. That's how she's explained it to me in the past. What Warren has said is that she's she felt a renewed connection to her past as she saw that generation passing away and saw herself as somebody in her family who would be carrying on this family tradition. And that is why she began to see herself as a Native American. It's an answer that she does not talk about a lot, but it's the explanation she gives. What does she say about why she's sorry? She says she's sorry because she's caused confusion about the role of ethnicity and the distinction between ancestry and tribal membership. And that's sort of the line that she repeats over and over, that she's apologized because she's caused confusion. Now, there are some members of the Cherokee Nation, I should say, who accept that apology and say, look, she's done a lot for us. She's very good on issues that we care about, and we can move on. But other members who I've talked to said, no, it's not enough to have a private conversation with the chief. You know, we like to see her publicly apologize for, you know, appropriating our heritage, our culture, which is how many members of the Cherokee Nation see it. In the past, you've always said, this is who I am. This is why I put my... I, this is why I did it. It's this is because this is who I am. Does that has that changed at all in your mind? I, I can't go back. Right. But I am sorry for furthering confusion on tribal sovereignty and tribal citizenship and for harm that resulted. It seems like For a lot of the Democrats entering the presidential primary right now, 
like a lot of them are making apologies for things that they've done in the past. You know, you have Elizabeth Warren talking about how she claimed that she was Native American. You have Kirsten Gillibrand saying that she doesn't agree with some of her past immigration stances. Even Kamala Harris has said that she regrets some of the decisions that have come out of her office as a prosecutor. Is this something that we can expect from everyone else in the race? (laughs) You are seeing a lot of different presidential candidates sort of coming out of the box apologizing for something. But they're for different types of things. In some cases, it's because it's clear evidence that the the party has just changed so much. And there are some politicians who are either running or thinking about running who've been around long enough to kind of experience a sea change in the Democratic Party. And they're trying to signal to the new and more energetic base of the party that they are willing to evolve along with the party. And I think, you know, Biden would certainly be in that category. Kamala Harris even may be in that category. But Warren's apology is different because it's about her identity. And this is not something that others are struggling with. What Warren is apologizing for is that she's sort of grappled with her identity and sort of taken on an identity that she's later realized was not the right thing to do. And so that's sort of a different space than some of the other apologies. What is your sense of how much Democratic voters are willing to accept these kinds of apologies, whether it's about identity in the case of Elizabeth Warren or about past political actions. Like, is there an appetite for forgiving these candidates? I think Americans are quite forgiving, but I think the apology needs to be one that is kind of full and loud. And I don't know that this apology that Warren privately made is going to fit that category. And I don't know that that was necessarily her intention. You know, you you tend to think of people forgiving politicians who are very contrite and really give a big explanation for the, you know, misdeed. And I'm not sure that she has crossed that bar. Annie Linsky covers politics for The Post. Elizabeth Warren plans to officially kick off her presidential campaign with an event this weekend in Lawrence, Massachusetts. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. In his State of the Union address on Tuesday night, President Trump reiterated his commitment to withdrawing troops in Afghanistan. My administration is holding constructive talks with a number of Afghan groups, including the Taliban. Absent from the negotiating table, the actual Afghan government. We do not know whether we'll achieve an agreement, but we do know that after two decades of war, the hour has come 
to at least try for peace. And the other side would like to do the same thing. It's time. If you say we went into Afghanistan in the first place because that was where 9-11 was planned and we needed to end that threat, and if we can make a deal that will end that threat, we win. I'm Karen DeYoung, and I am the senior national security correspondent, and I write about national security and foreign policy. Karen says that if you look at the war in Afghanistan and its origins, you could argue that it's time to get out. So at this point, does President Trump believe that they have successfully handed off all of these responsibilities to the Afghan government and the army there? He hasn't really made that case. He said, basically, look, we've been there, he always says 19 years, but it's actually a little over 17 years. It's time to get out. I said during my campaign, I was going to get the troops out, and I want him out. So when he announced in December that he was going to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria, he also told the military to cut the current force of 14,000 in Afghanistan in half. He was subsequently persuaded both in Syria and in Afghanistan that maybe that wasn't the greatest idea to do immediately. To go a little bit slower. Yeah, to, to slow it down a bit. So in pursuit of that goal of trying to decrease the number of troops in Afghanistan, even if it's not cutting it down by half, the U.S. is now in direct negotiations with the Taliban. Why is that happening? Well, that's something that started a long time ago. Successive administrations have always said this war will not have a military solution, it will have a political solution. The Taliban never wanted to negotiate. They said, look, yeah, we'll talk to the Americans, but we're not going to talk to the Afghan government because they're just American puppets. And the Americans always said, no, we're not talking to you. This has to be an Afghan settlement. You have to talk to the Afghan government. Because they're trying to hand off all these responsibilities to the Afghan government. Right. And I think the feeling is, quite rightly in my view, that you can't impose kind of an American-made political solution on the situation. But Talks with the Taliban actually started quite early on in the Obama administration. The Taliban were allowed to set up an office, a negotiating office in Qatar, country in the Persian Gulf. And in fact, they did negotiate the release of an American soldier who had been captured by the Taliban in Afghanistan. With a lot of criticism of that, a lot of criticism of talking to the Taliban, while this office has always been there, in Qatar with some elements of the Taliban leadership. There have been talks, there have been secret talks, there have been non-secret talks, but they never really got anywhere because they never really got over the kind of basic difference between them. The Taliban said, all foreign troops out of Afghanistan and then we'll play a part in the government, but we'll negotiate that with the Americans. We won't negotiate with the Afghan government. The United States always said that was unacceptable. So what has happened more recently with these talks? Last September, the Trump administration appointed a special envoy for Afghan peace talks. And that was Zalmay Khalizad, who is Afghan-born, used to be the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. He got in touch with this group that remained in Qatar and said, OK, let's sit down and talk. They've had several rounds of talks most prominently in January, where Khalilzad went in with four things he said needed to be talked about. 
Number one was what the United States says is its primary goal in Afghanistan, making sure that it can't be the way it was when al-Qaeda was based there. It can't be a launching pad for attacks on the United States. The Taliban had to agree that they would not ever allow terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State to use Afghan territory to plot attacks outside of Afghanistan. Taliban said, fine, in exchange for that, you pull all your troops out. And they said, well, you know, yeah, sort of in principle. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. And then the other two of the four U.S. priorities were you have to agree to a permanent ceasefire in Afghanistan. Everybody has to stop fighting. And number four, you have to sit down and negotiate with the Afghan government and come up with some kind of political roadmap that allows all of you guys to continue living in Afghanistan and not killing each other. Which it seems is what the Taliban has been resisting doing from the get-go, is they don't want to interact with this Afghan government that they say are American puppets. So the Afghan government, not surprisingly, did not like what happened in these talks. As Khalilzad explained it, and the Taliban agreed, the first two things, you know, outside terrorists and some kind of arrangement by which eventually American troops would leave, said, well, we've kind of got a draft framework for that. But in these talks, the Taliban said, well, on the other two, we don't really have authorization from our leadership to agree to anything on that. So we have to go away and talk to them, and we'll come back. And they all agreed to meet again at the end of February. Khalilzad goes to Kabul, talks to the government of President Ashraf Ghani, which is furious. Why, like, why weren't we there? Yeah, why aren't we there? Why are you even talking to these people? This is our government. You're going to give away the store. Ghani has his own problems. He's up for re-election in July. The Americans, I think, would like to move that date back a little bit. Nobody here in the United States wants to have an election while these talks are going on. Ghani thinks that the Americans are going to give away the store, that, as Trump has said, they just want out. Any agreement that's reached will not be an agreement that he likes. Well, it does sound like the U.S. is trying to expedite this and kind of come up with an agreement between them and the Taliban and the Afghan government as quickly and as expediently as possible. But it seems like things are still much more complicated than would allow for like a really quick pullout. Well, I think Ghani has a point. I think that the Americans have always said Not for us to talk to the Taliban. You're the government. You need to talk to them. And they have sort of circumvented that now. The Trump administration has said, well, these aren't really negotiations. These are just talks. And we're just talking about the things that we particularly care about. But when it really gets down to talking about Afghanistan's future and a ceasefire, then you guys will come in and talk to them. But nobody knows when that's going to be. And Ghani really doesn't trust the administration. So you said that these negotiations are going to continue at another meeting at the end of February. What do we expect from that? The Taliban is supposed to come back and report on their consultations with their leadership and to say, you know, what did they say about a ceasefire and sitting down with the Afghan government? But there are other complications, too, because there's the Ghani government, there's the Taliban, but there are lots of other groups in Afghanistan that have a stake in this. Some of them are political opponents of Ghani and don't want his government to succeed and don't want him to forge peace with the Taliban because they want to do it themselves. Some of them are offshoot groups from the Taliban 
who say, look, the guys that the Americans are negotiating with, they're not the real guys. You know, we're the real guys and we'll cause trouble if there's ever any deal. So there are lots of stakeholders in this and there are lots of disagreements. So if you think back to when we first entered Afghanistan, the point of doing that was basically to eliminate a threat of terrorism coming from Afghanistan that could affect the United States. Right. If in the way that the Trump administration is attempting to pull out now, will they be able to guarantee that that threat has been eliminated and that the original point of going into Afghanistan was successful? Certainly, that's part of the negotiations, that the Taliban themselves, along with the Afghan military, and they theoretically would all be in a government together, would guarantee that they would not allow Afghan territory to be used by terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Is that a guarantee that they can deliver on? Who knows? Al-Qaeda has a pretty big presence in Afghanistan. The Taliban still have a relationship with them. The Islamic State is there. There's lots of fighting involving them. Can the Taliban or any Afghan government guarantee that without them first being wiped out in some way? Nobody knows. And I think that any time you have a sort of remote country where there's political strife, there's military strife, can you guarantee that that is not going to be a breeding ground for global terrorism, particularly in a place like Afghanistan where it already exists? So it seems like at this point the goal, at least from Trump, is more focused on getting our troops out of there versus continuing to babysit this country to make sure that terrorists aren't plotting attacks from Afghanistan. I think I think that's a fair statement. And, of course, President Trump has also said, you know, our counterterrorism efforts around the world will continue and we're going to watch really closely. And we have such a strong military that I, Donald Trump, have built up that if we see anything bad happening, we'll just be back in a flash to take care of it. Karen DeYoung is the Post's senior national security correspondent. You'd think it would be a simple question. How many dogs and cats are there in America? The most commonly cited data on the number of dogs and cats in the U.S. find that there's about 90 million dogs and 90 million cats in the United States. And this is from a study by the American Pet Products Association. The Post's polling director, Scott Clement, says that figuring out that number is harder than it seems. That data comes from the American Pet Products Association, and it suggests that 68 percent of U.S. households have a pet. But there was another survey by the American Veterinary Medical Association that said that 57% of households have pets. And Scott thought that that disparity of more than 11 percentage points seemed kind of fishy. So it's curious. What gives? How many dogs and cats actually there are? It was surprising because I didn't think this was a question that was really up for debate, but the surveys really disagree. And if surveys are differing on big measures like that, it raises questions about their credibility. Scott says, in this case, and many others, it can be pretty difficult to find the right number for one statistic. 
That's because the outcome of these kinds of surveys depend a lot on the methods, whether they used a random sample or whether they make an effort to ensure that the results are representative of the larger population. The surveys that are done with a great deal of care, random samples, big response rates, these are showing fairly consistent results and a fairly consistent trend line over time. There's not a lot of change in the number of people owning pets. It turns out that the percentage of American households with pets is probably closer to 49 than 68 percent. And the way that Scott concluded that was by using data from an unlikely source, the part of the government responsible for counting the number of humans, the U.S. Census Bureau. Usually, the U.S. Census Bureau would be a great source, but I didn't think that they asked about pets. But it turns out they actually have. The American Household Survey, a survey done for all kind of important characteristics of households, actually asked people whether they had pets in their household because they wanted to know whether they would need help in a natural disaster. A lot of times the right answer is sitting right in front of us. We just have to look a little further than the ones that are being promoted the most. Scott Clement is the Post's polling director. And Amelia editor Karin Bruyard also reported on this piece. That's it for today's show. You can join the conversation about the stories in today's episode by using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 